Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn, if you would please, to Judges chapter 9 as we continue on. In our study, our overview of Judges. Today, it's called the Recipe for Disaster. Recipe for Disaster. You know, today we are living in what really seems like very dark times. Now, of course, every generation has probably thought the same time, that their time was the darkest of times. In his book, A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickinson wrote one of the most famous lines of literature that you might already have memorized. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the seasons of light. It was the seasons of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Good and bad. Purity and evil. We seem to be living in those days. Our country has seen those times itself. When we consider the Civil War, World War I, or World War II, and other trying events like September 11th of 2001, and other natural disasters across the world, others are experiencing trying times as well. Our schools are a mess. Our national discourse is muddled. Families are struggling, and we wonder, where is God in all of this? In scripture, we read of difficult and trying times as well. Since our first parents rebelled and sinned against our holy God, this world has been broken and affected by the curse of sin and death. There is no escape other than to put your trust in the prince who slays the dragon and wins the girl. Last week, we read of Gideon's great victory over the Midianites, But we also read of his descent into into the sin of idolatry and polygamy. Like many of us, Gideon was successful only when he was obedient to the word of God. But as soon as he acted out of his own initiative, he succumbed to the evil desires of his heart. We learn that godly courage and godly confidence and godly companionship are necessary for us to be successful in serving God. Today, as we turn to continue to turn to the pages of Judges, we find that the times are becoming darker due to the lack of godly leadership and morals and faithfulness to the covenant of Yahweh. We are introduced to two men that have several things in common that actually lead to Israel's continuing downward spiral. So with that, I know you're in Judges 9, but we're going to back up there to chapter 8, verse 33 through 35. It's here on the monitor just to prime the pump for us. Let's read that. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done. To Israel, Father, we thank you for your word. And again, as we open up this ancient text, help us to understand its relevancy to us today. You know, two, four thousand, six thousand years later. 
Lord, that we may understand what these are examples for. And Lord, how we're to guide and to live our lives to your glory. Open up our minds and hearts. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. And most of all, give us your Holy Spirit that we may respond to your work in our life. In your name we pray. Amen. Now from our opening passage, we see that Israel is continuing their downward spiral into sin and rebellion soon after the death of Gideon. They had enjoyed 40 years of rest and peace and safety through the leadership of Gideon and his family. Yet once again, they forget their covenant with Yahweh and a new generation of the Israelites abandon serving the Lord and they face now the consequences of their own sin through the oppression of an enemy. This time, though, the oppression comes from both, from both within and from without the 12 tribes. Our first character that we're going to study this morning, we're going to study two, is that of Abimelech. Abimelech is the son of Gideon by his mistress, by his concubine, and is a self-appointed judge who used brute force to enforce his rule. He is almost an anti-judge. His hatred led him to eliminate his competition by slaughtering his 70 brothers. Fortunately, one of the brothers escaped and proceeded to prophesy a curse against Abimelech and that comes fulfilled when he dies an ennobled death. His self-ambition and cruel ways set him in conflict with the very city council that empowered him in the beginning and leads to his eventual downfall. One theologian summarizes Abimelech's reign as one of a naked exercise of power. He was going to grab the mantle of authority and power and he wrestled it away and he was going to hold on to it with cruelty and brutal reign. As you and I turn to uh, Judges chapter 9 and look at verse 52, we see at this point that he has finally found himself in control of one city and he's trying to extend his rule out further. Remember, there is no oppression except the oppression from within. The enemy this time is not some country or nation from outside the 12 tribes, but it's one of their own. And we already seen that he's already taken one of his methods that he'd like to do is he would attack a city. In those days, the city uh, didn't always have walls and things that you and I think of now. And what they would do is the city, once they were attacked and they saw that they were losing, they would then run to the center where there would be a fortified tower where they would run to and maybe made of stone or brick and mortar, something a little bit more of substance and a little bit higher so they could look out and, and shoot arrows and so on and so forth. And the first time they'd grown to this this. Uh, tower and Abimelech says well I know what I'll do he went and got everyone to take out branches and straw and they surrounded it and they burned them down in that way and as we come to verse 52 we see he's going to do the same thing to another city look at verse 52 of chapter 9 and he came to the tower and he fought against it and he drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire this is the second city and a certain woman none known but a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. But it didn't kill him. In verse 54, then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. And his young man thrust him through and he died. 
And when the men of Israel saw that he was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he had committed against his father and killed his 70 brothers. And God also made all of the evil of the men of Shechem, who raised Amalek up, who gave him the money, who encouraged him, return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. So we see in this instance that the, the enemy was from within, not from without. This is a self-appointed ruler who said, I will take the mantle. And in his brutality, he was killing other Hebrew children, other Israelites. But God judged him. Between our two main subjects are two minor characters. There's Tola, who served 23 years, and Yar, who judged Israel for 22 years, for 23 and then 22 the writer of Judges did not share any more information other than they, where they were from and where they were buried. Though we are told that Jar had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and ruled over 30 cities. Yet even within this 45 years of peace and safety, as you and I move to chapter 10, we read that once again Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I think that if you were to take a marker or a pen and write that portion, that, that phrase in the book of Judges, most of Judges would be circled and underlined. This time the Lord used the Ammonites now to dis discipline the Hebrew tribes because of their sin. The Ammonites were distant cousins of the Israelites. Do you notice that? That most of their enemies were their cousins? Most of them from sin. They were descendants of Lot, the nephew of Abraham, who was the patriarch of the Hebrews. They were a constant source of trouble for the 12 tribes as they sought to expand their lands into Canaan. They were nomads who, who lived in the desert east of the Jordan River. And like the Midianites, they, they, they needed more land. They didn't have a place to, to grow and do agriculture themselves. They were brutal and warlike, always joining Israel's enemies and attacking them. As you read the Old Testament, there you see the Ammonites joining time and time again. They worshipped a false god called Molech, who asked them to sacrifice their children through fire rituals. They would take their children and they would burn them to death, their infant children, sometimes as old as five and ten years of age. The Ammonites are said in here in scripture to crush and oppress Israel for 18 years. And the people were severely distressed. And in their distress, they finally call out for deliverance in chapter 10. However, this time the Holy Spirit records how that conversation went. Could you imagine praying to the Holy Spirit, to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. And all of a sudden the Lord speaks back to you. But look at verse 10 of chapter 10. He doesn't answer in the way that they hope. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served Baal. So here they are repenting. They're confessing their sin. But look at how the Lord responds. For he said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me. And I saved you out of their hand. Do you not recall that I have done this? We, we've been in this situation before. Yet, in verse 13, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Hey, we've been in this cycle. It's rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. And I, and I continue to deliver you, but yet you continue to forsake me. 
Therefore, he says there at the end of verse 13, he says, I will save you no more. Remember what Randy was just reading to us just a little bit earlier in Isaiah 3. God says, I'm not going to deliver you anymore. I'm going to give you children to rule over you. I'm not going to be there for you at all times. Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Cry out to Baal. Cry out to Molech. See if he will help you. Let them save you in the time of your distress. In verse 15, and the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. By the way, underline that. We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Underline that verse. That is true repentance. When you and I confess our sin, it says, hey, we throw ourselves at the mercy of God. That is a great example of true, genuine repentance. Verse 16, then they put their lip, those words into action. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Once they obeyed and followed through, God became impatient with the oppression. And he said, now is the time to deliver you. So this leads us to our second person of interest, the character that we're going to look at today, and that's Jephthah. Jephthah begins his career as a successful outlaw and is described as a mighty warrior who is approached by the leaders of Israel to deliver them from the Ammonites. His mother was a prostitute, and he was shunned and driven out of the family in the land by his half-brothers who did not want him to inherit with them. He agrees to help Israel if they allow him back home and make him ruler if he is victorious. He is a master manipulator and negotiator. As you read through chapter 10, and I'm sure that you have, I gave that to you as homework this week. We see that he negotiates with the leaders of Israel in chapter 11, verse 9, to make him their leader. In 11:12, he begins to negotiate with the leaders of the Ammonites in an attempt to make peace. And then thirdly, in 11, verse 30, he negotiates with the Lord to gain his favor and victory over his enemies. He's a manipulator and negotiator. But despite his character, we've already seen he's an outlaw. He is someone who makes his, his living by hurting others. But despite his character, in chapter 11, verse 29, we read this interesting phrase, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. Could you imagine that? Even though he was an outlaw, a criminal, a man of low character, the spirit of God rested upon him to be used by God's purposes. Are you telling me that in all the land there was not one good man? There was not one mighty warrior, not one good man of godly character who could stand up? What we're reading, if they are, if there were, they're not stamping up. They're not filling the void. They're left with Japheth. He won a great victory over the Ammonites. However, like Gideon, he allowed pride and hubris to lead him down a tragic path. Join with me in reading his vow at 1130 as he's negotiating with God. He makes a vow. Lord, if you do this, I'll do this. Look at verse chapter 11, verse 30. 
And he made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hands, that whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, whoever comes out to greet me when I'm done, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, burnt offering, as you can remember, that's where they take the bull, the calf, whatever, and they would cut it from stern, you know, the bottom to top, drain it of its blood, take the innards out, and put it on a fire and flame it up. They just broil this thing. He says, whoever comes out of my house first, I will, burnt, I will offer them as a burnt sacrifice. Again, this vow was an attempt to manipulate Yahweh into granting him favor and victory. Negotiating with God. If you do this, I'll do this. Unfortunately, as you and I move down to verse 34, we read the story of him coming home. Then Jephthah came home to his home at Mespah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. Again, here's a man of low character. He makes a vow and who does he blame? His daughter who's coming out to greet him as a, as a daughter who loves her father. He blames her. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take my vow, back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. Now, I'll have to admit, there is much debate regarding this vow and his actions. And it really boils down to two. Did he actually sacrifice his daughter as a human sacrifice or did he uh, do something different? There's two debates. Some, some would say, yes, he, 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 he killed her. He, he did like Abraham and Isaac was going to do. He was going to kill. He killed his daughter. Others believe, no, what he did because she was, she bemoaned that she was a virgin, that he just gave her into the, sac, or into the service of the Lord. And she served as a single woman in the tabernacle of the Lord. Now, we're not going to spend much time on this debate. It's been going on for thousands of years. You and I are not going to solve it. I will give you my personal opinion because I believe it's the, 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 the preponderance of Scripture is I believe that he sacrificed his daughter. He killed her and gave her as a human sacrifice. That is my own opinion. That is the more oldest opinion of it. Uh, in any case, whatever it may be, his vow was foolishly made and was not required by Yahweh for victory. Nor did Yahweh honor this. Not only was his, this vow sinful, so was his response to also the tribe of Ephraim. So it was not only that he killed his daughter, but we see now that he mistreats or mishandles Ephraim. Now, this is kind of Ephraim's fault. You and I have read several times how Israel goes out to battle and then we're done. Here comes Ephraim just like a day later and says, hey, why didn't you call us to battle? We were ready to go. Ephraim does this once again. And, and Jephthah does what he normally does. He sits down. And he says, well, wait a second. Let's negotiate this. He tries to talk them down. But they respond by saying, no, you are a fugitive. You're an outlaw. We're not listing you. So he grabs his men. And they fight. 
And tragically, Jephthah wins and kills 42,000 of his own countrymen from his own tribe. However, in Judges 12, 11, we're informed that he judged Israel for only six years before his death. Now, as you and I think of this, there's some commonalities between Abimelech and Jephthah. First, both were considered illegitimate. Son of a concubine, son of his girlfriend, mistress, son of a prostitute. Both were shunned and alienated by their families. They didn't want anything to do with them. Both had worthless and reckless companions who followed them. We see this in chapter 9, verse 4 with Abimelech, and in verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 3. With Jephthah, they say they were with the wrong crowd, worthless and reckless companions. Both were selfish, seeking to promote themselves over others. And both were men of their times. Now, these commonalities are going to be important as we try to understand what we should learn from this. The biggest difference between them was that Abimelech was not appointed, nor, as if you notice, was empowered by the Spirit. He did not bring any victory or peace since he was fighting his own people. So Abimelech's story is not so much that he was a judge. There's some debate of whether we should include him as a judge or not. But he truly isn't a judge as he is the problem. He was the oppressor. But Jethas was approved by God. And he was used to deliver his children from their enemies, even though he was a man of low character. These two men, though, as this is what I want us to learn, is that in Scripture, it's pointing us to the darkness of the time, the lack of godly leadership, the lack of godly morals, and the lack of faithfulness to God. These two men capture the darkness that Israel is facing during this time. Now, as you may recall, the first few judges were honorable. They were godly and they were faithful. Yet as time goes by, the judges used by God are more affected and shaped by the culture around them. And as we go into next week and the week after, we're going to see that Samson goes even further in being in a downward spiral. Now, there are several things, though, that we can learn from these two men as we consider how things got so bad. How are things so terrible that the only leaders that they can find are just men of low character, men who are not godly, men who are not faithful? Why would God use those type of men? I want to give you four things. First, as you see here, and I believe I may have them on the, on the screen so you can write them down, is number one, You'll understand this. We get the leaders we deserve. We're seeing this today. We get the leaders we deserve. Alexander Hamilton said, people get the government or the nation they deserve. And this is very true. Scripture says the same thing. Look at there in Scripture. It says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Then in Proverbs 29:2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people what? Groan. They complain. You and I are living in these types of times today. And it was no different back then. 
In our scripture reading earlier, we read that because of Israel's sin, that the Lord removed all the good leaders from the church, the political system, the business, and the economy. You're talking about Isaiah 3. He removed the military and all the armed forces, even the judicial system, and even down to the educational institution. Is that not us today? Because of our sin, our rejection of God, God removes his favor. And one of the things he removes his favor from is from our leaders. We get the leaders we deserve. We wonder why our leaders reject God. They give lip service to being a Christian or loving God or serving God or professing the Bible or that there is a God. Without any godly leadership, Israel turned to outlaws and broken men to fill the void. And that's what we do. We ourselves, in our own government, we look to flawed men. Men of low character. Because who else is to fill the void? It's sad today as we look across and sometimes you wonder, is this the cream of the crop in the United States of America? Is this the best men that we have? What's unfortunate in this time of day, what good man would stand up to fill the void? What he'd have to go through, what he might have to do or compromise. It seems like then when we do have a good man of character, that they're torn down and rejected. And when we do so, they, they may have bought moments of peace in turning to outlaws and broken men. But eventually they suffered the consequences of their choices and action that actually gave them just a, a small period, six years of peace. And then they go further. So number one is we get the leaders we deserve. Number two, the lack of a father and a strong family relationships can be catastrophic. Can't emphasize this much more. As mentioned earlier, both men were born under what many today would call illegitimate circumstances. They were both abandoned and ostracized by their families. And it's hard for us to consider what that might have felt like, especially in a culture then where you found your identity and purpose in your tribe and family. Today, we're more about individuality, right? You, you may not even live where you were born. You may not live near your folks. You're, you know, that, that's more of, a, more of a thing today. But back then, it was a family environment. Your identity, your legacy, your job, your vocation, who you are, and what you received was through your family. Remember, that's how God gave them the land to each tribe, and then to each tribe, to each clan, and each clan, to each person in that clan, and so on and so forth. So these two men are, are one is, is, is by a mistress with 70 brothers ahead of him. The other is a, is a son of a prostitute whose family wanted nothing to do with them. What are their, uh, what are their, what are their choices? What are their uh, possibilities in life? It's almost like being a man without a country. Without land and a future, many of them resorted to make a living in any way they can, usually through illegal activities. And we're seeing that today, the breakup of the family. We've been speaking about it since the 70s, at least. Probably much further than that for those of you who are older and know. Slowly been happening bit by bit. And now it seems like we're on this downward where we're just on a, we're just on a water slide now, just waiting to hit the wave. 
Number three, not only did they get the, the leaders they deserved, but you see a lack of father and the lack of a strong family relationship led to catastrophic. But also number three, they surrounded themselves with the wrong crowd. They surrounded themselves with the wrong crowd. Scripture describes their friends as worthless and reckless fellows. There's an old phrase you'll see it here on the screen. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. And that is so true. I have been a youth pastor for many years and I can tell you, I could see someone's friends, who they were hanging out, and you can almost tell them what their future is like. Scripture warns us in 1 Corinthians, it says, do not be, be deceived, excuse me, bad company ruins good morals. And let me tell you, parents, it doesn't matter how strict your family is, how God-honoring is your family is, and all these things, but if you allow your children to hang with the wrong crowd, do not be surprised if it starts to affect their lives. I tell you, if you're starting to see things with your children, look at their friends. And you know, by the way, this goes for spouses as well, husbands and wives. All of a sudden, their attitudes and mindset changes. Who are they hanging around with? What are they watching? Who are their friends? Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, so on and so forth. Over the years, I've seen this play out over and over. It's normal now to see videos and pictures and read stories of a large group of young people attacking older men and women, disrupting businesses, and just generally creating havoc. Just this morning, this week, reading again, seven teenagers in Philadelphia attacking a 72-year-old man with a, with, a, with a traffic cone and killing him. For what purpose? For kicks. Did they mean to kill him? I, I don't know. But the motive of the heart is just disruption. And we see this time and time again, two years ago, or was it last year with the riots? We see this type of thing going. It's amazing what someone will do once they're in a crowd. Many people have asked, some of you know my story, you know, I have three brothers that wound up into drugs and alcohol, one almost losing his life, beginning an addiction ministry after coming out of it, bringing one of my other brothers out of it. And people always ask, well, why didn't you go into that? And I can tell you, very simple. It may not be the full answer, but the answer is simple. We grew up with the same parents. We went to the same school. We lived in the same neighborhood. So we watched the same TV. We watched. So what was the difference? I was older. They were a little bit younger. The kids in the neighborhood were a little bit younger than I was. So my interaction with them was a little bit less than my brothers. And what were those friends doing? Drugs, alcohol. And that's who they did it with as they grew up. Is that the only reason? No. But I just see that just as an anecdotal of my own life, of how friends could lead you astray. Number four, why they, did they lead into this? It's the folly of adapting to the culture. The folly of adapting to the culture or adopting the culture, either way. Both of these men were men of their times. They adopted the attitude, the thinking, the practices of the surrounding nations. Abimelech, I will take power by any means necessary. Jephthah, by making a vow of a, of a burnt sacrifice and giving of a human sacrifice. God had warned them through both Moses and Joshua of falling into this trap. Yet we see the results of their failure to do so throughout the book of Judges. They were consumed with self-promotion, selfish desires, and seeking revenge. 
They adopted the worship rituals of the pagans, even offering <coughs> up, excuse me, their children up for human sacrifice. They rejected the loving kindness of Yahweh. They neglected the covenant they had made together, and they relegated God, our great God, they relegated him to a 911 call. I call him when I have an emergency, or I break the glass when needed. When things got dark and desperate, now I need to call God, and hopefully he'll answer me. So we get the leaders we deserve, the lack of a father and a strong family relationships, and the surrounding themselves with the wrong crowd and the adapting to the culture leads us into darker times. So as we consider this, we must agree that you and I need to mark and avoid their mistakes and sin. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is important for us to understand. So, so what, does, what does Judges 9 through 12 have to do with me? I don't live in those days. We don't have pagan gods, right? No one is sending their children and sacrificing their children in the name of Moloch. Are we not? California is making it a tourist attraction. We're offering our children as human sacrifice each and every day to the tunes of thousands. How did we get so dark? How come we have men that are lacking in godly leadership and morals and faithfulness? What does this have to do with us? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, in this passage, the Apostle Paul warns his Gentile audience of the importance of the Old Testament and its relevance to their generation. And I would say that it's the same for you and I today. So how are you and I to consider the story of Abimelech and Jephthah? Look at verse 6. Now these things, Paul writes, took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In other words, they just lived for pleasure and self-gratification. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Sexual immorality, that is the greatest freedom today. If you want to know what is the, the freedom today, the greatest value in today's world is sexual freedom. Not only for you, but for your children. They are after your children. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things, again, happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think that you cannot fall to anything, see, he says, take heed. They didn't think that they would fall either as they were walking across the Red Sea afterwards and seeing Pharaoh's army drowned they were feeling good. After defeating all their enemies or the majority of the land of Canaan, they were feeling good, but they did not take heed. And they fell. So let's take his advice and warning seriously. 
And consider how you and I might escape the snares and the schemes of Satan and his demonic horde, as well as our own flesh that works against us. Like our passage today, we face an enemy from without, but also from within. Knowing that, let's take heed. I want to give you four things based on what we learned. Number one, let's pray and submit to our leaders. Let's pray for godly men. Let's support godly men. Let's lift them up. But even if our leaders are ungodly, even if they are outlaws and, and, and scalawags and, and scandalous, what does the Bible tell us to do? To pray and submit to them. Turn to Romans 13. Today we seem to have a void in godly leadership as well. Every facet of our lives is touched by their incompetence, their corruption, and negligence. Many, if not most of our leaders, have abandoned or rejected any pretense, pretense of the fear of God. Yet we must remember that all authorities are ordained by God. In Daniel 4, chapter 4, we read that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and he gives it to whom he will and he sets over it in the lowliest of men. We've seen that. Nebuchadnezzar is speaking of. But in Romans chapter 13, look at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governor and authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So why do I say pray for President Biden if you feel like he's not your president? The same reason I say pray for President Trump, President Obama, Bush, so on and so forth. Why? Because they are God's ordained moment for this time. We may not value them, we may not agree with them, but they are God's men for our time. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to good. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive the approval. He goes on saying, these are the things we would do. You may want to mark that in your Bible. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Even when they fail to do this, you and I are called to pray and submit to them. We need to pray. We need to support, submit to those leaders, praying that, that God would open their eyes and hearts and their minds to the truth of the gospel. That God may fill in the void, that we may no longer have infants and women, no, no disrespect to the women, what he's giving there to rule over us. But that God would come and saturate our men and women. And I, the Bible has nothing to say. There is nothing wrong in the Bible about a woman being in government position. There's, no, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. So pray for godly women as well. We need to fill this void. Number two, commit to building strong family relationships. Commit to building strong family relationships. After marriage, the family is the, next most, is the next most important institution that God has ordained. Scripture has much to say about families and the importance of raising our children in the fear of the Lord. One of the qualifications for an elder is that they safeguard their homes, and that qualification is extended to all Christians as we work and keep as we cultivate and protect our most precious gift, our children, 
our families. We live in a society that does not value family. You need to understand this. If you're in the educate, public education system, have your children, you must understand that they do not value family. They are working hard to tear it apart, to redefine it, and to limit parental authority. So you and I must understand this, but commit to build that in spite. One of the greatest, greatest tragedies in this country was the advent of no-fault divorce. Many children have grown up in broken families. They're alienated from one or both parents. They're separated from their cousins and grandparents, and they are left to fend for themselves. Theologian Owen Stratton tweeted out this week, he says, Dad or Mom, is there a struggling boy in your life? Before you go the route of medication, pray hard and prioritize this. Time around strong, godly men, time in the Word of God, much time outside in nature, time working hard, time on fulfilling hobbies, time off screens. Love that boy. When the world is saying, let's limit this because they see these young men that are bringing guns and just killing people, you and I need to recognize that we need to love our children. We need to protect them. It's no wonder that we have graduated from latchkey kids, remember that from the 70s and the 80s, to lost generations, trying to find their identity, trying to find their purpose in a place wherever they could find it. And let me tell you, I said this in, in our adults core class, is that the world is very good at finding disaffected and lonely young men and women and bringing them into their way of thinking and embracing them. It is no wonder that in America, transgenderism is growing by leaps and bounds. Just think of this. As you look at one lady was saying who, who transgender and transitioned back. She says, I, I just had to wonder, why is transgenderism growing in leaps and bounds in California and New York, but not in the Midwest? Why is transgenderism so prevalent in the United States, but you look around the rest of the world, and there's not a lot of transgenderism. People aren't struggling with gender dysphoria. Why? Because it is a cultural thing. And they are very good at bringing your children in and infecting them with this. This leads me to the next one. Is number three is pick your friends carefully with the goal of pursuing sanctification. Now this is for children and young adults and adults as well. Make a list of your friends. The people you hang around with. The people you let speak into your life. The people who counsel you. The people you love to do life with and enjoy life with. Are they helping you pursue sanctification in Christ? Or are they leading you away? Are the things that they seek pleasure and entertainment, is it, is it sanctification? Is it making you more like Christ and freer from sin? Or is it pulling you away? Proverbs 4.23, we read, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Look your eyes, uh, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all of your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. One of the ways we do this is by choosing our friends carefully. 
King Solomon understood this when he wrote in Proverbs 18.24, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So it's not about the quantity of friends you have. It's not about the quantity of likes and hearts that you get on social media, but it's the quality of those who are in your circle that you listen to, that you take advice from. I give words to parents. So I tell you, if you have young children, you pick their friends. You find their parents and you make friends of them. Again, as I said before, it makes no difference if you live a godly home, if you're letting your children go spend the night at someone who, who's a child of the devil. Well, I, I make sure my kids can't watch this on YouTube or this on their Instagram or this, but then they go to a friend's house and who knows what they're doing. And then you wonder what in the world is going on. That's what we did in our home all the time. We just didn't do it at home. We just did it at our friend's house. Parents were none the wiser. I would tell you, you don't let your children spend the night at other people's house. You let those kids come into your safe home. Let them spend the night. Let your place be the place where the neighborhood kids hang out. Yeah, it's messy. It's, it's, it's loud. But you know what? You can protect your family much better than that. And I continue on and see the same thing. I, I, you know, one of the things that we do is I want to know who my, child, or my children's friends are. We were always that place where they come. Many of them became friends of ours and we came to know them. That was important. I used to joke that my mom was very good at that. She would have kids come over and our place was a place. She, you come in our yard, remember this, guys? I think this is Southern California. But you could always tell where all the kids were because all the bikes were laying in the front yard. No one ever used a kickstand. You just got off, left your bike. Does that happen here back in the day? Well, that's how you could tell in the Midwest. You go there. You know, and my dad started to like all my friends and all that. I think my dad liked my friends more than he liked me. I just, I just, I don't know what was going on. That's a joke, by the way, Mom, if you're listening to this. So pick your friends carefully with the goal. If they are not helping you become more like Christ, then these are friends that you need to shed. Or the problem is, is you're not living a godly lifestyle because your friends, you will not have to shed your friends. Your friends would shed you as you learn, learn to live a godly life. And so the problem is both. You've got some outside influences you need to shed and you yourself need to make that pursuit of goal, that goal of pursuing sanctification yours. Let me go on because the last one is here. Number four. Protect yourself from compromising with worldly cultures and influences. This is kind of going in line. Because once you do that, you won't have this problem. This was Abimelech and Jephthah's problem. They adapted themselves and they compromised to the worldly culture and influence around them. We need to heed the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, not like Jephthah did with his daughter but one that's holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We've lost this. We have pastors, we have teachers, we have churches that are no longer uh, 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 protecting their, their flock from the wolves. But they've opened the doors wide and they've invited the wolves in and they allow them to wear sheep clothing. And they give access. We're no longer protecting and feeding. But we're opening the doors and allowing them to be fed upon. 
So you and I need to realize that we are not to compromise and be like the world. Pastor Tim Keller warns that many times we are affected by our culture more than the Bible. And I think that's true. John warns us in his first letter, do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you hear that? For all that is in the world, the pride of life, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father. That's what we see with these two men. They had no love of the Father. They had the love of the world in them. The world is passing away, but whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. Anna Mintz, writingforgodinterest.com, an online blog. She comments here. It's up here so you can read it. It says, you are surrounded by people, things, situations, and faculty or facilities that affect your thoughts and feelings. You've got to understand that. So many of you think, no, I'm a steel trap. Nothing gets past me. I'm my own man. But no, there are things around us that influence us. She goes on to say, all these influences have the capacity to affect change in your character and behavior. Over time, the influences you allow in your life alter or shape your state of mind and direct you towards certain motivations and actions. We are seeing this playing out in real time today. You might be seeing it in your own life, in your own family. That's why it's important to wisely deal with influences that hover in your life. Now, let me say this, because you and I cannot get outside all of this. All we can do is protect our family. You know, we all have family that may not love Christ. We may have other people in our family that have different thoughts. They're in schools, they're in neighborhoods, so on and so forth. But all we can do is do our best with the, with the help of the Holy Spirit and directing our children towards God is as that's hovering is we're protecting them, understanding that influence. The power or the, 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 the fight is not only from without, but it's also from within. I'd like to end this morning with a word of warning and encouragement. The warning is that we can read of men like Abimelech and Jephthah and believe that we're not like them or declare that we are not as bad as the 12 tribes of Israel. But I want to tell you that you are Abimelech and Jephthah. You are the Hebrew children. We are the ones who have adapted. We are the ones who many times our families are lost to us. We are the ones that are in need of a deliverer. Many times we are the flawed leader that's filling the void. But if we're honest, we understand deep inside that either we have the capability if we are not vigilant or that at times that we're prone to be affected by our circumstances and that around us. Let us take heed. Let us consider the words of Galatians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, weep, will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I want to encourage us that we can promote godly leadership and godly morals and godly faithfulness even in our weaknesses. We should not be surprised that even our heroes of faith, remember, Jephthah, who sacrificed his daughter, who was an outlaw, is actually called a man of faith in Hebrews 11. Blows my mind. I don't understand it. Why in the world would God, it surprises me that God would even step in and even help Israel in the first place. Why would he, why doesn't he just, just smack them down and start all over? But let's not be surprised that God does. 
Let's be surprised that God doesn't. For God is a good God. God, though, still commissions and empowers these flawed, sinful men to accomplish his purposes. Even their moments of faithlessness, or even, excuse me, even just their short moments of faithfulness is a gift of God. And here's something you and I must understand, is that God uses even the most evil of people and the evilest of circumstances to accomplish his purpose. Evil does not triumph over the long term. It may have its day of victory and day of rejoicing, even today, but in the end, we will all stand before God and be judged. Let us rejoice and give praise to our God, who despite our weaknesses, reaches down to empower us for his service and his glory and good. Tim Keller writes this here. You'll see it here on the monitor. God's, God's, God's people's greatest problem is us. Our own failings and our own misunderstandings of God. Yet God both graciously judges in and saves his people. Let me close with this last word of encouragement from the Apostle Paul who writes, when those times when we are struggling, when we ourselves are reckless and worthless, or worthless, he says, no temptation is overtaking you. That is not common to man, but God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted by your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let us stand firm in the word of God, recognizing that in this void, He is looking for men and women to stand up for him. Amen? Let us be those men and women. With every head bowed, every head closed, his worship team comes up as Randy makes his way here. I want us to just take a moment again to pause, to consider the words of judges, these examples, these instructions for us. What can we learn from them? Those four things on family, on on, 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 on adapting to the world. Let us take heed. For God will not be mocked. One day we will stand before him. I pray today that you are standing in that void. You are cultivating and protecting your family, your heart, your wife's heart, your husband's heart. That you are pursuing the sanctification of your own life. And in doing so, you're being the salt and light that God has called you to be. Let us us be the aroma, the fragrance that uh, affects this world rather than the other that God may be glorified for our own good. Randy, would you come and close this in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.